Hello, and welcome to the second season of Refrangible. I'm your host, Jonathan Fields. And I'm Jonah Chester. Our first episode will cover the intersection of politics, culture, and clothing. What happens when what we wear becomes a political or social statement that could result in our being accepted into a group or ostracized? What we wear sends social cues, but we really don't have any control over how people interpret who we are or our intentions based just on how we're dressed. In order to start this segment off properly, I really feel like I should give props to where this idea came from. I was watching the Questlove documentary. Have you seen it, Jonah, The Summer of Soul? I have not, but it's been on my watch list for quite a few months now based on your recommendation. I strongly suggest you check it out because at about 60 minutes in, the conversation shifts from this event that was taking place in Harlem in 1969 during Woodstock. And the conversation changes from the political aspect of what's actually happening in the music to how you can see how political ideas are changing in the crowd based on how people are dressed. I come from that generation. I don't even mind saying it. And I can remember when my oldest brother, Jerry, went from wearing what we would call 25-piece suits to wearing an Afro, a French vest. I want to say that there was some African print in there and maybe some hints at a reinterpretation of the American flag. So I just wanted to see if we can still see those social shifts and how people dress and sort of how that's played out in our community over the years. Does that make any sense? That made perfect sense. So how do we want to express this story? You know, clothing as a political statement, where's the best place to start with this conversation? I think the best place to start is to give a nod to that documentary and look at the 60s. I want to look at how Black people were dressing in this country as they shifted from the gaze of what white people thought to expressing who they knew they were. There's a definite shift of how Black people dressed, of how African-American people dressed, that was considered socially acceptable, that sort of slid us under the radar in terms of being safe, of how shifting from the style that was dictated by our oppressors to being closer to our authentic self and recognizing and expressing our own cultural garments. So tell me about Henry Hawkins. Well, Henry Hawkins is a professor from UW-Madison, and he's an art professor. And actually, I have to I have to come clean here. He was my professor, like, in the 80s. <laughs> so that kind of gives away my age. And I wanted to talk to him because he's always someone who I felt had a great sense of style and sense of self. And he's a great storyteller, and he's a great thinker. And I think by looking at his life and looking at how he found the strength and how he found the courage to express himself with his garments and how he had to, I don't know, how do you say it, live his best authentic self within a guideline. Because even though he certainly had the strength to express himself in what he wore, there were still social pressures that he had to be concerned about. He had to worry about his safety. He had to worry about finding employment. He had to worry about how he would be received by his own community. I think if we look at Professor Hawkins' story first, that gives us a good gateway or a good entry into the rest of the conversation. The idea of how one represents oneself as being themselves, in this case, uh, the core of it is being Black, 
and how uh, how we manifest that in our dress and, and the things that we show others about ourselves. It sounded simple. Then the realization hit me. As a black person, my internal choices had been influenced the whole of my life by externals. And as much as I wanted to um, do everything myself and, and consider my thoughts for myself, that the pressure of growing up in a post enslavement um, society with a with a bent on race and racism that uh, it, it it reflected itself throughout my life so how did you see those reflections was it a, was it that you felt that you had to assimilate or did you feel that you had to live your authentic self even more out loud the more out loud stuff didn't come because growing up in the southeast there was always a threat it was a terrorism threat a threat of physical violence a threat of using police departments and governments um, to keep you in a certain status and that was just something that I I, that was related to me um, as a child that you have to be careful you can't you can't just be yourself and that means not reacting. The minute you react in defense of your humanity, either you were crazy or an immediate threat. So talk to me about at what point do you come to that realization as a young person, like, man, I can't do and be who I want to be because of external forces. Okay. In that case, a lot of internalization t- takes place. That is, I could live in my creative domain of my head any way that I wish to, but I couldn't live outwardly. I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. I get a job in high school, and I'm working in a clothing store, and it was a part of the city of Montgomery downtown that was frequented by African Americans, mostly. The people that own the place would have all manner of public conversations about people like me as if I wasn't there. Whoa. And so the question becomes, do I say, you know, what's wrong with you people and all of that and how dare you? No. And my thing was to totally ignore them, which meant I showed no emotion on my face or anything. I went about things as if they were just ordinary. Because um, my dad had told me earlier that the system that you live in is like being in the crazy house. So you have to decide. You can't be another inmate. Mm. You have to work from the perspective of the doctor. <laughs> That's genius. It, is, it was total genius. Uh, it, it, it helped me figure out like how I was going to survive as a human being, how I was going to maintain that space of, of, of humanity for myself and allow me to develop as a normal human being. And, and that was most of, most of the members of my family. We all turned out people who knew their personal value. When you see that and you have those memories, 
Because Uh as a professor, you are walking the line between both worlds. Did you feel almost like getting dressed was putting on some kind of like wearing garments with either armor or costuming? Or how did you feel about presenting yourself and what you wore and how that fit into what you needed to do in order to be safe and be successful? Mm hmm. Um, I think that part of, by the time that I got to the university, I had had other experiences where I had to wear clothing a certain way. I was in the Navy, so I wore their uniform. It was about cleanliness and, and presenting yourself to the highest order. But I also had gone through the civil rights movement and had done community organizing and stuff. And that was really the first instance where I was looking at who am I in terms of what I wear and stuff. Because uh, I started out in Montgomery um, where I volunteered in the SNCC office. Mm. That was the area that I had worked in in the Navy, you know. I, 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 I ran an office. And so I tried to get a job in Montgomery, uh, you know, as, as a management type person, even though I had that experience of managing other people they were not going to give me a job. <laughs> and, uh, and so I got um, uh, uh, inadvertently involved in the civil rights movement by being arrested at a demonstration because friends of mine called me over. They saw me, and they hadn't seen me in a long time. But anyway, I ended up in jail, and they said, don't get out if you can. Stay in. So I stayed in a week, and it was a lesson for me. I learned so much about the civil rights movement because being in the Navy, I was not up because they didn't give us information and stuff like that. We didn't get a lot of information. Uh, And um, so when I got out of jail after that week, um, I I went to see if if I could do volunteer work for, for, for SNCC. And so they say, yeah, sure, we could use your skills. And so I worked in the office and then I started going out with the, with, the, with the organizers that went out into the countryside. And they would go to these towns in Alabama, radiating all the way out from Montgomery. And, and, and Selma was one of the places that I spent time in. Mm. We, would, we would go and, um, and, and, and try to talk to people about voting and, uh, and, and get them um, connected with people in their community that was part of the effort and stuff like that. And sometimes we were chased by by the local farmers out there because and the, and the local white people out there because they didn't want people to vote. They didn't want people to do that, you know. And so and so part of my thing about clothing was that we wore clothing that reflected the community. So it was kind of like working clothes, farming clothes, you know bibbed overalls, uh, working boots, um, you know, blue chamber shirts, and um, stuff like that. So did you consider that like like superheroes wear their superhero wear? Was Was it protection? Was it assimilation? Was it all of those I, things? It was, it was assimilation. Because remember, SNCC was all college people. I was, I was, on my crew, I was the only non-college person. 
because I, I was just gotten out of the Navy. I hadn't gone to college yet. So, so we dressed that way so that we would, people would see us eye to eye level, not in an artificial thing where they think that they had to be looking up to us because we were interested in where they were. So then at what point do you get to decide or have, do you ah, ever, have you ever yes. felt like you decided? Yes. It was when I start, started looking at stuff. This was in the 60s through the 70s. And the whole um, black power movement, the whole thing of, of looking at Africa, African history, I became a student of African history. I didn't choose anything that looked formally militaristic to wear. I chose, you know, like African garb, dashikis, also let my hair grow out. So that's when I really came into that thing of consciously making this transition, in a sense, to not care about presenting myself to anyone. The whole idea that basically I'm a human being with a human history that's mine, and it's mine to live all of my life. Did you face any backlash? I remember when I started locking my hair, and mm-hmm. the thing that I heard, and I still heard until the day all these, my elders, most of my elders died, she used to have such pretty hair. When I got involved in the civil rights movement and stuff, I had some members of the family that were uh, military and, like, um, high up. When I was involved with stuff out there, there were, there were like, the FBI went to my family to ask them questions. Wow. That was enough to, you know, kind of, like, scare them. But the other thing was they just, they just said, especially when I work in Appalachia, they just said that that boy, that boy crazy. He's a hippie. <laughs> You know, have you ever that, been called an educated fool? Well, I have been admonished not to be an educated fool. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, when I was studying uh, art history, there was a commentary by um, an Italian guy, um, Baldessari, mm-hmm. and and he dressed in these colors. It was elegant. It was. Uh, statement of his station in life and everything else. But the color itself neutralized people. (laughs) (laughs) And I did that. And so I could wear anything that I want to. The only thing that was uh, extant in it, in my decision, was that it neutralizes people, that it was colors that didn't excite them. So what are those colors? Blues? Creams? Tans, browns, medium browns, some of the muted oranges, basically blues, some things slightly grayed or grayed. So like earth tones. Yeah, 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 earth tones. The natural stuff that would, um, that would just cause people to stop, you know, bringing the reactive temperature down. You know what, Professor Hawkins, it sounds like, this is terrible, it sounds like you're wearing camouflage to go out in the wilderness to not be recognized by animals. Wow. Guess what? (laughs) Guess what? Guess what? 
here's, here's, here's why I made a decision to do that. My whole thing is what I learned when I was doing civil rights work. I want to keep it based on what, what, I'm, what I'm there to do. I want non-obstructive communication. And guess what I find? I find out people very easily talk to me. So the conversation is not about, it's not about what you wear or what you look like. It's actually what's coming out of your mouth. It's who you are, not what's external, not what's on your it's, skin. Right. It's who, it's who I am. But I'm still wearing clothes that's me, clothes that I like, clothes that, you know, that are nice. You know, it, it's, a, it's a very, very in, in, interesting thing. And it turns out that that's almost anything. I have a certain style. I have a certain personality. I work in a field that's primarily older white men. And so I have to sort of wear the armor, the superhero Mm -hmm. costume, that kind of garb that will let me in that door. It's powerful. In fact, I'm working middle school and no high school. And a kid, because I would ask the kids, you know, when we had a space where we weren't um, teaching or learning, I said, "Um, hey, you working yet, kid? He said, well, no, I'm talking. I, I said, well, well, what, where have you tried? Did you, did you try McDonald's? He said, I don't want to work at no McDonald's. I said, at, at a certain period in life, McDonald's dollars are better than no dollars. Hello? Yes, exactly. And then, then he said, well, I, I tried to find a job, but I can't find one. And I said, son, to be honest with you, I would not hire you for a job that calls for seriousness um, with what you're wearing. You're wearing, you look like you're ready to go to a party where you, don't, you only have to focus on being men and feeling good. I said, now, you go into a place where people hire you, they have things in their head. They don't want you looking gangster. They don't want you looking all flashy. And I said, so, um, wear your work disguise. And he said, what's that? I said, for some of those places, it's a nice shirt and a pair of light pants, and, uh, and you're good to go, and a cap. Well, two weeks later, I'm walking down the hall, and the hall is empty, and he's coming to meet me. And he's got this smile on his face, like leaning forward and bopping toward me so happy. He said, you're right, Mr. Hawkins, you're right, Mr. Hawkins. I got hired. I feel like the the second I got to college, I was really excited about like being able to just like dress however I want without that fear of like looking weird or seeming weird. I mean, it's always going to be there. And it's not like my my parents discouraged me at all. I feel like the the pieces that I choose for my outfits all like they go together but at the same time they don't exactly correlate so it's like I'll have on a very like long spooky black dress but I'll throw like a graphic t-shirt over it just for that bit of comfort. I feel like for a long time in my life I just dress like a 12 year old boy all the time so I was I was very accustomed to wearing like goofy, funny t-shirts 
and jeans and sneakers. And then as I got older and sort of like grew into my femininity a little bit more. And I feel like a part of my current style is still growing into my femininity. I included things that, you know, like showed off my figure a little bit more and I had more like makeup going on and whatnot. I think the biggest, I think the thing that makes my outfit, like my look the weirdest is my makeup. Cause I, I got to college and one of the first things I did was I just shaved my eyebrows off. I just, like, I did it in my little dorm sink. I just took a razor and I took them off and I draw them on different every single day. I like to keep them really high on my face and pointy. And I, I feel like sometimes I do, like, I walk out of the door and I'll just immediately be like, okay, I don't know how I feel about this now that I'm around people. Because in, like, in the moment when you're getting dressed and it's just you, you're like, yeah, I look great. This is this is a good idea. But like remembering that there are like eyes on you the second that you go out can be a little intimidating. And then you start to feel a bit like a, like a clown sometimes. <laughs> but um, I think that I'm just trying to teach myself to like be okay with that and just like accept the fact that like, okay, I'm wearing this and I'm out and about and I can't exactly go back and change so I'm just gonna own it I'm gonna flaunt it and hope that somebody <laughs> doesn't say anything mean to me so I don't just shrivel into a little ball I I do sometimes feel wavering in my confidence about what I wear but I'm I'm trying to teach myself that that's okay and I feel like a lot of people feel like that but you know, I'm the one taking a risk by looking a little crazy, so, you know, you gotta stick with it. You gotta commit to the bit. And I'm, I'm trying to be okay with committing when I'm not so sure about the bit. I think that I do sort of wear my, my clothes and my makeup as a bit of armor, because it's like, I'm, I feel very safe within it, and like the way that people perceive me is like it's it's almost like a protection of myself because it's like I feel good and then outwardly I know I I look good and so that's how people will see me and perceive me just outwardly and then hope that maybe they'll think that I'm cool on the inside because I look cool on the outside so maybe it's it's armor with a bit of deception I feel like people should feel more comfortable pushing the limits of like how they look and if they want to like really go outside the box I just wish that more people felt comfortable doing that like not just limited by their own constraints but like maybe the opinions of like their family or an institution or just their environment in general I just wish that people would be more open to looking a little crazy Ben Sully is an actor of stage and screen and an activist for proper representation of native talent in movies, television, and theater. He's also a friend I've had since preschool. 
We grew up in rural Indiana in a town of about a thousand people that felt a thousand miles away from everything. It's a place far removed from his current home of Los Angeles. I wanted to talk to Ben about his experiences in Hollywood and how movies and television have for decades drawn a picture of indigenous people that is far from accurate. I, I want to start off by just, just saying it is impossible for me to speak for all natives. You know, we live in such a big country that our indigenous populations were, were and are so spread out that there's so many different customs and rites of passage and, and different, different things that make each tribe completely unique from one another. So, you know, my, my perspective is going to be that of the Shichangu Lakota Oyate, and even that's a little skewed because, you know, I, I wasn't raised on, on the reservation. But in, in, in terms of acting, we kind of have this issue right now where we're, we're starting to get more representation. We have shows like Rutherford Falls, Reservation Dogs that are coming out. Spirit Rangers will be coming out uh, this year. That's the, the first children's animated show that's all native native writing team uh and and you know we're making strides in that but at the same time we have to be looking at in the same way anytime you're trying to make amends for any sort of cultural shift that's trying to fix something for people of color who have been on on the not the wrong side of history but they've been put into worse situations throughout history we have to look at not just the actors, but we have to look at the casting directors and the directors. And right now, the image of a Native American is kind of up to whoever is casting that role. And there aren't any Native casting directors, as, as far as I'm aware. I, I think that maybe Angelique Midthunder might be, or maybe her husband is. But like the biggest casting director for Native folks is Renee Haynes, and she's a white woman. And, and, you know, she's great. She's fantastic. I love Renee. But I do think that there has to be a conversation at some point of how much are these folks dictating what a Native American is to the public's perception. And through that, they're dictating what a Native American is to... Native Americans, because we, we have to also keep in mind that Natives are, are uh, at this point, we are fairly removed from our culture. It, it wasn't until, I believe, 1978, maybe, that it became legal for us to practice our cultural beliefs. I believe it's the Indian Religious Freedom Act of 1978. But until then, you know, we couldn't count coup, we couldn't, we couldn't dance, we couldn't smudge even without they're being able to be legal recourse. So you take that kind of separation that we have. That's why so many of our languages are dying and, and why there are so many questions about like, who, who are we? And then you add that with the fact that natives aren't getting to dictate what a native is because, you know, I'm native, I'm enrolled in the tribe. I'm enrolled in a federally recognized tribe, but I do not conform to the stoic, broad-shouldered man that a lot of people assume is what a, a native is. I, I think that there needs to be a bit of a perspective shift of what a native is. And I, I 
posted a, a tweet that went semi-viral a couple years ago when I was first looking for management or, or an agent of, I, I, I sent in my resume and my headshot to a pretty big agency. I, I don't remember who it was off the top of my head. Otherwise I'd totally throw them under the bus now, but I sent in my headshot and my resume and they promptly emailed back saying, do you have any photos of you looking native American? And I was just like, what, what does a native American look like? If not me, a native American, maybe the uh, issue here isn't that I don't look native American, but it's that you have a certain idea of what a native American looks like. That's just factually incorrect. So yeah, we, we are making strides in Hollywood, but there are still conversations that need to happen. And I think just things that need to be considered because, you know, I, I don't know that the few casting directors that kind of specialize in the native area of casting. I don't know if they've really thought about like, who am I to be dictating who is and isn't native. And then if, if you think about stage plays, you know, native representation, we, we are less than because every year actors equity puts out their demographics of who's working and, and shows. And I, I believe that native Americans are like, 0.01% of all roles go to them. And I know for a fact that they're all just the theater that I work with out here, Native Voices at the Autry. And like there are a couple of sister theaters uh, uh, across the nation that, you know, only do Native works. But, you know, there's no Broadway representation for Natives or, or anything like that. And so we, we've definitely got a ways to go. And, and I think that it's incredibly important that we do kind of try and expedite that because growing up, uh, my representation was, you know, Johnny Depp in, in the Lone Ranger or whatever. And the Iron Eyes Cody, who was the Italian man playing a native in a canoe who had the single tear roll down his cheek when he picked up the litter in the, in the river or whatever. You know, we, we definitely have been lacking in that regard. And for a people who are so kind of lost as to who they are, I think that it's really important to give a, a very broad representation to them. And one thing that you, you mentioned when I texted you about this initiative that you wanted to cover outside of Hollywood was, you know, this is, this is obviously an issue in theater, in movies and TV, and it, and it continues to be an issue. But commodification of native culture, particularly clothing, certainly isn't unique to Hollywood. It just you gave numerous examples in your text, you know, uh, companies like Urban Outfitters stealing native designs and Aztec prints, uh, Minnetonka selling moccasins without actually, you know, contributing anything at all to the tribal nations of America. So this, this definitely isn't an issue that ends at Hollywood, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and the commodification doesn't even stop at that. Our image in our, you know, that the perception of what a native person is has been so in, enforced by mascots as well. You know, just because the, before I say it, I, I just ask that you don't say this word as well because it is a slur, but just because the Redskins have changed their name doesn't mean that they didn't profit billions and billions of dollars off of us while, you know, my cousins were killing themselves because that's how they're viewed or, or that's, that is our, our representation. You know, when, when you have a, a people who are starved 
for representation, you know, they'll take what they can get. And if that's the Indians, the Braves, the, the Redskins, that's what they get and that's how they view themselves. And then in terms of more in line with, with clothing, the Aztec prints were having a big moment in the mid 2010s and nobody ever thought about where those originate from. And if those people see any of the profits and when, when you're taking something that is directly stolen from a culture, it's worth it to sit and think about that. But because natives are never really in the front of people's minds, it's easy to just forget and live comfortably. Minnetonka recently apologized for building an entire brand based off of moccasins while never giving any money to native tribes, but they still haven't offered any money to native tribes. And that's kind of a big issue that I have is when you commodify my people and you don't offer anything in return to them, it's just theft at that point. It's a cultural theft that, uh, well, I mean, I mean, it's appropriation, which is cultural theft, but it's absolutely something that's just, it's trendy to be native, but it's not good to be native, if that makes sense. So you would, you would like to see those companies pay. I don't know if, um, I don't know if restitution is the proper term here, but essentially uh, take a cut of whatever money they made from selling those moccasins or selling that particular image of a, of a sports team's mascot and donate those to tribal nations. Well, I mean, that, that would be nice. <laughs> um, but I don't know that Dan Snyder's even apologized. They've just changed the name of the football team. And, and you know, it, uh, an apology is easy to do. It's easy to open your notes app, write out a paragraph, send it to the team who handles your copy, and then post it to your socials. But it's a real apology would be identifying the damage you've done to the, to the people and noticing that they're still struggling, you know, and, and this is also a very sore spot for me because I come from the poorest reservation in the nation. My reservation is the poorest. And then our sister reservation, Pine Ridge, is, is number two. And so I've seen struggle and my family struggle all the time. And meanwhile, there's people making billions and, and, and millions off of the very soul of my people. And, and I feel like if they really felt bad and, and they, they were really apologetic, they would be able to identify that there are still issues going on in, within tribes and, and just within our community and say, you know what, we should maybe help because we might be a little bit at fault here. And I don't want to say that, you know, Dan Snyder or Minnetonka are, are the main reasons. You know, I think that the U.S. government has a, a, a big responsibility there as well. However, they didn't help, but they profited and they haven't offered any of that to us. Ben, thanks so much for talking with me this evening. Um, before I let you go and get on with the rest of your night, is there anything else you want to toss on the on the record? Anything that we haven't discussed here today that you, you think I should include in the episode or that you feel deserves airtime? Well, I, I think that, you know, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the vintage resellers of things like regalia 
uh, beadwork and things like that, where people don't necessarily know what they have. And, you know, every piece of regalia is, and that's, that is kind of a, an umbrella term that refers to any sort of culturally significant where that, you know, every single piece of it has significance, whether it's attained through uh, or obtained rather through a rite of passage or through doing something for your tribe. It's all significant, but it's happening very, very often at flea markets and at vintage stores, how headdresses and um, different uh, pieces of, of regalia are, are being found and being resold for, for very, very high prices. Uh, prices at which no native could afford. And it's an issue because all of those pieces are traditional and significant and sacred. And a, a big thing that a lot of natives are trying to do is rather than think of ourselves as, you know, we, we have mythology, it's important that we try and think of our kind of culture as sacred so that we can try and keep it alive and, and pass it on. And as things like that get resold, it takes away that significance. You know, you, the person buying it doesn't understand what those eagle feathers represent. And, you know, I, I wouldn't either because that wasn't my, my regalia. And I, I think that there's, there's a big issue. And the only, biggest thing that I'm trying to get people to do right now is just like when you see some legit moccasins or a headdress or even white sage at you know, a flea market, odds are it shouldn't be there. And I I really hope that in my lifetime we can get to a point where there is a lot more of a stigma against reselling it and, and you know, commodifying our culture, essentially. White sage and uh, specifically is currently endangered and 90% of commercial white sage is stolen, is stolen from tribal lands. So if you're native and you want to smudge, I recommend you grow it yourself. And if you're European and you want to smudge, I recommend finding a different herb. You know, you can use lavender, kitchen sage, something like that, but leave the white sage to, you know, the people for whom it is very significant. You've been listening to Refrangible, a production of the Center for Design and Material Culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. If you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe and leave a review. You can also give us a shout out on social media and let us know what you think about the show or if you have any thoughts or recommendations for future episodes. Just tweet at UW underscore CDMC. Tune in next time for part two of our exploration of clothing and culture when we examine the making of garments from a troubled past. Until then, I'm Jonah Chester. I'm your host, Jonifer Fields, and we'll see you soon.